welcome everyone to episode 7 of the Greater European Talks. Today we're going to discuss about current events in Russia and Eastern Europe. And with me we have Dari, based in Moscow. You want to say hello? Hello. We have Nadia joining us also from Moscow. Hi. We have Jonas joining us from Essex. Hello, glad to be here. And myself, of course, joining you as always from Leuven. So, there are many events, especially across this region, and sometimes it's quite tough for an outsider to get an insight into it. So today we're going to bring you a wide range of topics, starting with Darius looking at the memory wars that have been going on, especially around World War II, between many Eastern European countries and Russia. And Nadia is going to talk about the referendum on constitutional changes over a quite interesting and quite surprising announcement over constitutional changes um, in Russia. Uh, Jonas will be introducing a little bit about Russia's agreement with Saudi Arabia and some of their foreign policies there. And lastly, I'll be recapping a little bit about um, Vladimir Zelensky's work in Ukraine, especially trying to counter the corruption in there at the moment and whether that's halting or slowing down. So first I'm going to hand to Dari if you want to introduce a little bit about your topic and then we'll start the debate. Yes, sure. Thank you. So um, basically the world has recently celebrated Victory Day. So it was celebrated differently in like Russia, in the West, of course, like um, because of the coronavirus and the lockdown that ensued. However, um, this holiday, this uh, important day in our history, again, sparked an enormous controversy. So uh, whereas in Russia, people celebrated like the victory over the Nazi Germany, uh, there were countries, especially in Eastern Europe and uh, the Baltic nations uh, that actually keep forcing this agenda that um, the Soviet Union should also be considered as the country that uh, instigated the war and um, just like the Nazi Germany. So, of course, and I believe that's the core issue that uh, Russia has been having with uh, Eastern Europe. And it's also one of the main reasons uh, Russia can have normal, like, non-violent, not, I wouldn't say like non-violent, but uh, non-hostile relationships with Eastern Europe when uh, Russia keeps hearing all these accusations and uh, Eastern Europe uh, keeps forcing this uh, narrative. So basically, um, the reason to bring this up now is because like Poland uh, recently uh, adopted a strategy that says that Russia is a major threat. Then we have the Czech Republic that dismantled the monument of the Russian Marshal Konev. And we also have like the Baltic states, again, pursuing the narrative of Russia and the Soviet Union has been responsible for the war. And um, I believe the problem lies uh, not only in the way we perceive this uh, horrible war, but also in the way if we can actually let go of uh, the past, I would even say this way. And it's important to know that uh, the German foreign minister Heiko Maas, I guess that's the pronunciation, he actually announced that Germany is the one to blame for the Second World War, and there should be no discussion about this. And yet we have countries in Eastern Europe uh, that say that it's uh, incorrect. And um, I feel like that's the reason uh, we can't actually have really productive and adequate relations with Eastern Europe. And I think it's important to actually figure out how we can move on. 
because moving on is necessary. If, for example, if Europe hadn't moved on from the Second World War, there would not be the European Union now, for example. So moving on is crucial, but the question is how? So I believe there should be like a debate and uh, people actually should understand so what really happened and uh, who should be held accountable. And uh, we should stop with this, um, I guess, like preposterous accusations, but uh, at least a way out is highly requested in this case. Mm -hmm. I guess one question I have is, who does this benefit, uh, the kind of questioning over the instigators? I mean, is it particular parties? Is it a particular form of politics? Um, is it even some within kind of uh, countries there? There has to be someone. There has to be some sort of benefit to someone for this to be a debate. So, who do you think is benefiting? Even though I'm not into like conspiracy theories, but we all know that, like, uh, we should people like not only people like countries should sell arms, like like equipment, all this military stuff, mm. and basically the only reason uh, the Baltic states or Poland uh, is in need and like is in so much need of uh, like NATO equipment. Uh, NATO like arms and all of it is uh, basically because we, they have this alleged Russian threat. So otherwise, why would you deploy missiles or like military personnel in the Baltic state or in Poland, for example, to protect this country from what? So basically, uh, NATO should actually sell arms like the U.S. should sell arms. And uh, even though I'm not, again, into conspiracy theories, but I believe that's the only possible or reasonable explanation for this. Because otherwise, you know, the question that I have is that, uh, of course, the Soviet Union took over all these countries in Eastern Europe after the Second World War. There is no doubt, right? But the Soviet Union is, go is gone. So it's been like 30 years. And I believe that there was a transition period when countries were trying to adjust to being like next to each other, to being partners again. But that was, for example, the 90s. Now it's like 30 years. And when they keep forcing this narrative, as I said, that Russia is a threat, I, wanna, I want to see like real actions of Russia that constitute this threat to Poland, to Estonia, to the Baltic states. Otherwise, it's just uh, words for me. And of course, there is this argument about the Ukrainian crisis. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. <laughs> but at the same time, at the same time, if we look at the data, it's available online, like Pew Research Center says that even before the Ukrainian crisis, the attitude, for example, of Polish people towards Russia was like very negative, like 60 percent. Now mm -hmm. it's like 80. So mm -hmm. now we have this excuse, like the Ukrainian crisis. But what was it before? That's the question. So, and as I said, the only possible explanation is that arms should be sold, sold. I see, I see. So it's almost as if there's um, the possibility of, yeah, the threat being not only amped up now, but seemingly increased historically in order to justify kind of further, further arms routes. I think it's, a, it's definitely an interesting one, but yeah, I... I I would question maybe Russia's other actions before Crimea, such as the invasion of Georgia, 
such as other actions in Chechnya that showed Russia's sort of remilitarization was also a problem that propelled it further. Um, do you think there is an understanding from the Russian side that there's a reason they're also worried? Or is it more pushing by NATO or armed suppliers from the West? Well, I believe the main problem lies in the definition of invasion, I believe so. Like, as you mentioned, the invasion of Georgia. Uh, and I really doubt that a lot of people in Russia would call it this way. As, like, of course, we have like liberal institutions who would, who would describe this this way. Mm-hmm. But in general, it's seen completely different. It was like, well, mm-hmm. they see it as like it's protection or whatever. So I'm not like here conveying my personal attitude or something. I'm just saying that how it's uh, generally perceived in Russia. So of course, there are people who think otherwise, but the majority uh, do believe that uh, it wasn't like this in case of Georgia. But I think there is also a matter of reciprocity as to why we cannot, for example, exercise our military power within like our borders. And I'm talking about like this um, military events that we also mm. hold, yeah, like uh, Zapad or whatever, so they call. Yeah. So and they and you know in Europe, uh, it's also perceived as a threat. Yeah, for example, uh, there was an interview by a former Polish foreign minister to Deutsche Welle, and he said that he also exemplified our threat, our aggression, uh, by the example of our this military events. But at the same time, so we have NATO that uh, has the same training. So, you know, like, it's, it's not about, like, Russia, NATO, who's right or who's wrong. It's like, you know, every single country in the world has military. And this military should be trained. And if it's just training, so what, what's the problem? So and I don't mm-hmm. personally think that, for example, when NATO has this training in Poland, I don't also think that it's a huge threat. So they are, like it or not, part of NATO and they have their training. So that's not a problem, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I don't actually understand this. And again, mm-hmm. like about actions. So... Poland, it wasn't the part like of the Soviet Union. It was like it was under the influence, of course. But I really like the question is with, with Poland is that um, we have, for example, like Ukraine. It used to be part of like the Soviet Union or Georgia or whatever. It's like controversial and debatable. But again, when it comes to Poland, so I don't really see the reason. Like, I don't really see that. And with the Czech Republic, it's also they keep bringing up the issue of the events of 1968. But that's the year when our parents were born. So and again, Mm -hmm. I keep saying this like it's been 30 years. So and nothing like this has ever happened with modern Russia. So, you know, if, if it was like a real infringement on European territory, I would say, yeah, like there is a rationale for European states to think that we are a threat, but otherwise, I'm not really sure if we can say it is. Yeah, I guess. Uh, oh, sure, Jonas. Yeah, uh-huh. um, I must complain before I speak any further. I'd also prepared for this topic, so I, I have a few thoughts which I want to share on this. And first, let's turn to Czech Republic, to Prague, to where the statue of Ivan Konev was removed. Uh, at the beginning of April. And what we see there is that, of course, Ivan Konev was the general which liberated Prague and much of uh, Czech Republic and Slovakia. And 
then uh, in 1968, apparently, he also played a role, role, which of course is there's always two sides to the to the coin. Uh, and what came out of this, of course, was that uh, the mayor of Prague was apparently uh, followed, and an attempted poisoning was made on him, to which uh, the magazine Respect in uh, Czech Republic said uh, it was an attempt on his life by uh, Russian intelligence agents. And that is something which has not been confirmed yet. On the side of Moscow, Russia has now sort of uh, started a criminal procedure against uh, Czech Republic uh, for removing this statue of Konev as well because of its historic symbolism. And yes, of course, there, there is a history of repression before the war, after the war, with the Soviet Union in Eastern Europe and Central uh, parts of Central Europe. But one thing which we cannot forget is that, you know, the Russia paid the ultimate sacrifice in the Second World War, killed the most um, Nazi soldiers, but also had the most casualties. You know, the conservative figures are 27 million. And we, we cannot sort of overlook the importance of the 9th of May to uh, Russia. It's Patriots Day when millions sort of flood the streets of Moscow with pictures uh, and cutouts of, of their forefathers, well, forefathers, their, their relatives still alive or, or dead. And sort of turning from this, I think it sort of fuels this Russia's perception of it being an antagonist to the Western world, you know, a Russiaphobia, as a lot of uh, minister, Russian ministers have said. And one thing as well which struck me beyond Eastern Europe was this, um, was this tweet by the White House on the 8th of May, which said, today we pay tribute to the sacrifice of the US and Great Britain. And that was it. And that caused a massive backlash on the platform because it just sort of, in a way, rewrote uh, the history, did not acknowledge the, the Russians. But this, is, this has been a problem for years and a lot of the symbols related to this, such as the St. George's uh, ribbon, is used by Ukrainian, um, but sorry, by Russian separatists in Western Ukraine, uh, and so uh, it was. Ukraine. And uh, uh, sorry, yeah, in Eastern Ukraine, and so it's it's it was banned in 2017, uh, mm -hmm. and actually you can go to jail for wearing one uh, in especially Western parts yeah. of the Ukraine. If 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 I if I can just interrupt there. Um... Kind of a question to you both then on the background is evidently things are escalating now or have escalated or there is definitely a sense of tension. What can be done to resolve it? What can be done to de-escalate? What measures can yeah, both sides take? Nadia, go ahead. Yeah, because it's like the ending of the conversation. Can I just like... Yeah? Sure, yeah, go ahead. Uh, so, first of all, uh, about like the World War Two, it's an amazing subject in Russia because... I guess it's the only thing that everybody, it doesn't matter what political stance you have, they everybody agrees on. Because either you are like a liberal or like conservative, either you are for Putin, for Navalny, it doesn't matter. Everyone agrees on the Russian role in the World War II that, I mean, it has won uh, at home and helped to won like the, the Cold War. And when... Um, these uh, like accusations the, um, from Western countries and Western countries denying Russian role, 
it actually, and that's really funny, it actually rises the morale of like Russian, the Russian population, which is really low now because of the crisis, because of the, well, everything, economic crisis, coronavirus, and it actually helps uh, the government to like mm, solid its power because like petri- patriotism, that's, yeah, the pronunciation, um, it actually based on uh, the role of Russia in World War II. That was my first thing to say. And the second, I completely disagree on the whole subject of um, um, denying, like accus- accusing Russia uh, in all the atrocities of the World War II by the West- Eastern country, by the Eastern, well, damn, by the Eastern European countries, and that being the reason why we cannot have like normal relations. I, from, in my point of view, I'm not sure, but it's like a tiny, teeny, like detail in the whole like relations, because um, in the whole relationship, because now like of course Russia poses a threat in terms of influence, because Russia has now has chosen another path, not like the Western democratic part uh, path, but like another one. It's Completely another question was whether it's wrong or right, whether it's good or bad, but that's like the choice has been done. And uh, Russia is trying to be a new center, a new center of power, a new pole of power. And of course, Russia being a huge, huge country, it has incredible influence on uh, smaller countries. And it is a threat to, to Eastern European countries because, I mean, they depend on Russia in many, many ways. Energy, uh, export, import. Yeah, you can have, have a lot of examples. Yeah. Denying Russian role in uh, the World War II and accus- accusations, it is like a tiny ideological thing that is being used in a huge, huge war. Debate over yeah, a huge yeah. debate, huge war, because, uh, well, Eastern Europe is trying to be like as like European as Western as possible. That's their path. Mm-hmm. And of course, and in Russian um, and Russian uh, external policy, there is a term mm-hmm. like satel- sa- satellite. That's the word, yeah. Satellite. Satellite. State, yeah, yeah. yeah, satellite states and Russia. Near abroad, I think, is the current term. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. Okay. So, and the whole Eastern uh, Europe, other like uh, former East, uh, former um, Soviet republics, mm-hmm. yeah. It is all, they are all considered by Russia as the uh, how, near border countries, you said, yeah? N- near abroad. Near, near abroad, abroad, near abroad, thanks. Yeah. Uh, so for Russia, it's really important to keep them uh, like under, the, under its influence as it considers, like Russia considers it to be like, I don't know, a shield or something. But for, for Russia, for Russian uh, policy, um, external policy is like something really... I don't know, like basic, like it should be like this. Yeah. So of course it tries to uh, put it in, like, like to influence East Europe, East Europe, and well, East Europe doesn't want it. So the whole debate's happening, and uh, World War Two subject is just like in detail. Yeah, got it. I think we spent a lot longer than we were planning to on this subject, but Dari, if you could just briefly summarize again, kind of question earlier, what kind of solutions do you think? there are to this um, tension to de-escalating the the issue uh, on both sides. What can either side do to kind of de-escalate? Well, actually, it's a pretty uh, hard 
uh, like it's a pretty complicated question like to answer uh, well the only thing that I would like to say is that uh, both Russia and uh, Eastern Europe should uh, try to give up this uh, prejudiced attitude that they have that they seem to have towards each other so uh, on part of Russia it's to give up the view that Eastern Europe is somehow still under the Russian influence which is it's not it's the European Union now so and we can't compete with this and on part of Eastern Europe is to give up uh, this narrative that Russia is uh, a threat and they should actually I believe stop referencing every single say, thing they say uh, to the World War II. And the last one is that I believe that we should uh, consider every possible cooperation is just like a cooperation. So it shouldn't be like in high school where like, if you are friends with this guy or this girl, I'm not going to be friends with you. So it shouldn't be like this. For example, if there is a president, for example, of the Czech Republic who says that I don't really think that uh, sanctions really like work. We should try to find another way to solve this. Yeah. And uh, it shouldn't be regarded as a betrayal of the European Union or something. It's just an opinion. And uh, I believe that uh, if uh, any country, if any European country wants to have cooperation with Russia or vice versa, it shouldn't be considered as something vile or wild in nature or dangerous to the European Union. Yeah, one, one last thing before okay. we move on. It's very cheeky of me, but may I? We've already spent a lot longer than this than we should. It uh, better be within a minute. It's going, to, it's going to be a minute starting now. So basically, I think <laughs> there is, of course, a, a mutual history here, two, two experiences, very broad. And it reminds me of what happened a few years ago with the statues of the Confederates in, in, in America and then the talks of Cecil Rhodes. What needs to happen, I think, here is that rather than just removing Ivan Konev from uh, Prague's street, what needs to happen is maybe put a plaque on the side or, or, or something along those lines, explaining the nuanced nature of this character, yes, as a liberator, but then maybe returning in the Prague spring of 1968 as, as more of a repressor. But do not anger um, do not anger Moscow and, and, of course, the Russians on this, because it strengthens Putin's agenda if, in the sense of revitalizing patriotic culture and promoting that patriotic culture. So I think what, what Central Europe and Eastern Europe has to respect is to sort of find, find a balance of main, maintaining it, explaining it, highlighting things such as the Katyn massacre in, in Poland, which killed 40,000 Polish officers and so forth. But at the same time, remembering the sacrifice of ordinary Russians. This is actually more of a social history approach rather than a, a political history that we should take on it, I think. Okay. No, it's a very interesting one. And uh, yeah, this, this, this has been one of the most controversial things we've talked about on this podcast so far. So it's really glad to hear. Um, so yeah, definitely. Thank you all. Um, so next, I want to move to Nadia, who wants to introduce and talk a little bit more about the referendum on constitutional changes, which to begin with, has been delayed, am I correct? Yeah, yeah, because of the virus. Yeah, take it away. Yeah, so, well, to start with, just like a quite little, yeah. yeah, background, a little bit of background. Uh, so, the, it is called the Amendments to Constitution, uh, and they were proposed in January, the first time, and uh, in the beginning, there was nothing about Putin staying, like, forever. Uh, the first, like the most shocking thing, was to remove because in Russian constitution there is uh, a word in a, a like a phrase in a row, 
which means that you cannot uh, be a president for, for two terms in a row. And they propose to like get rid of the in, in a row phrase. Uh, and that was a huge, huge uh, shock for everybody. And there were other amendments. I will talk about them later. But that was like the most shocking one. And everybody decided that Putin was, you know, like uh, preparing. No, no, no. In the beginning, everybody was thinking that he was preparing like uh, his, I don't know, successor. Uh, Yeah, 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 successor. And actually, if you read like political pundits, political analysts, they were, everybody was like trying to guess who will stay instead of Putin and what will happen. Will he follow the the survive scenario of, um, you know, like staying in power, but not being the president? And then was, I mean, everybody, every political analyst was like proposing his own version or her own version. Uh, And then, uh, like, I guess in March, uh, so um, yeah, the, all the amendments were approved. And uh, in March, there was like a final, I don't know, final something, final, I guess it was deputies. Uh, union uh, reunion and um, uh, one of the deputies, which is uh, who is Tereshkova, the first woman in space. Uh, she proposed uh, that we uh, like um, nullify, if I write to pronounce this word, nullify. Yeah, yeah. The number of presidential terms served by Putin. So it means that he can stay. I know uh, forever. Well, not forever. For two or three more terms. It uh, depends if we nullify it Which now. Which is practically forever in his, yeah. um, his age. <laughs> yeah, and that was a huge sensation. I mean, nobody, and that's funny because almost nobody, none of the, and I'm not talking about like ordinary citizens, and I'm talking about uh, like the presidential administration, deputies and everybody, they all, well, not all, but most of them was convinced, were convinced that uh, like... Um, the transition of power will happen and that like the uh the initial uh, amendments of you know getting rid of in a row will you know be used and we'll have a successor so it didn't happen and um uh, it was supposed to vote for the uh, amendments in april 22 if i'm not mistaken but because of the mm-hmm. coronavirus everything got uh, delayed yes uh, a bit of another amendments. There are like, there are like actually a lot of them. Uh, yeah, we don't need to go through all of them, but definitely like, it's any of the key ones. Yeah, the key ones. Well, uh, there are a lot of amendments that make president more powerful, really a lot more powerful. He can like uh, decide on judges he likes, and I mean like not simple courts but constitutional courts. Uh, he mm. also it makes. Uh, yeah, it gives a lot more power to the president. And there are also some, uh, like, amendments that make sense and that are used for, like, to promote the amendments, if it makes sense. Uh, it's like deputies cannot have um, uh, property uh, property abroad. Um, oh, I see. Yes, and because corruption, you know, uh, and yeah. everybody's like, oh, yes, that was finally they will be like us, like mortals. Yes, and it's like on TV, it's always everybody speaking, oh, that's a good amendment. Then there is uh, a really anti, anti, anti LGBTQ um, amendment, which, which it is stated that family is only man and uh, woman's union. 
which I mean, we we were really bad at uh, <laughs> LGBTQ rights before, so it doesn't really make any difference. Um, so yes, and some oh, and about Russian uh, people, that's really interesting because it was it is stated that Russian people is now like the um, how to say uh, the uh, for um, the like the, the the most not important. But the people that like form the state, if I'm, if you can understand. I see. Okay. Yeah, yeah and that so is. That... Yeah, that is like okay. really weird because we have like Russia's multinational state, and yeah. So okay. yes, and well, a, a bit about the reaction. Uh, uh, so there were, of course, uh, protests, uh, but. Uh, because the current coronavirus situation, it was not so, I mean, we didn't have, like, Russian people didn't have time, like, to react properly. Uh, there were some protests, protests that didn't happen. There were, like, uh, several of them planned in Moscow, but they, I don't, because of different reasons. They, not because of the, like, government, uh, refusal. And, uh, they, they keep postponing the uh, referendum because of coronavirus. And, uh, oh, yes, and about statistics, according to Levada Center, which is one of the biggest uh, sociological centers in um, Russia, it's what, like, the amendments were approved by uh, 48% of the population and 47 didn't approve it. So it's like, you know, 50-50. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. I guess, so, t- t- two questions I have now. Um, A, well, why are there constitutional changes being pushed forward? Are there any reasons other than maybe he just wants to to remain in, well, obviously it wasn't necessarily Putin who put the amendment forward, it was, he said, the female cosmonaut. Um, but yeah, why were these changes uh, put forward? And secondly, um, why the referendum? And do you think it's, well either a good decision or do you think it might blow up in the government's face? Mm, the first one, the first question, it is a huge question for all like political analysts because what is like the most, like for in my point of view, the most adequate variant is for Putin. It's not only uh, like important to stay in power, but to like, you know, leave a trace in history. Like, you know, a legacy, yeah. Legacy, like, contribute to reforming, like, the country. Uh, and there were all many other variants, like, a lot of theories, because nobody knows, actually. But that's, like, the most adequate one, in my opinion. And as for referendum, here I'm not really competent to, like, answer you. If it is amendments to the Constitution, it should be a referendum. Maybe, um, uh, you would correct me. Uh, but... Like, it's approval because, like, Putin, like, making it legitimate, like, you know, like, uh, people will, because people will approve Putin because, like, the uh, the amount of, the majority of Russians still support him. Um, and he's, like, he making it, like, a, legi- a legitimate one, like, being, like, a legitimate uh, decision of the whole Russia, of, of, the, of Russia, mm-hmm. the whole population for, uh, to, like, to give him another term another chance to stay in power okay interesting uh does anybody else want to add comments or ask a question well i would like to say that um 
in general, I think that uh, Russian society doesn't actually understand why these amends are being currently implemented, especially because in Russia we have a lot of issues like corruption, social inequality, like poverty, and all on and all this stuff. So a lot of we have a lot of more burning issues that need to be solved, and uh, yet there is a lot of money spent like on this, and there is uh, this debate, and the government has been engaged in this, and I think a lot of people can say that uh, it doesn't actually make any sense to us because why would you need why would you need this if we have so many serious mm-hmm. problems that we have to address another one is that i believe that it doesn't matter wh- where you come from uh, but we all can agree that uh, people who are in charge like of countries they should change it's not because like uh, if you're like a liberal or a conservative or whatever like uh, power needs some fresh air a new perspective and I think it's a problem when you have a person in charge for so many years. It doesn't matter like, if you like him or not. So it doesn't. The problem is uh, there should be some fresh air. There should be new perspective. And you can have it if you have one person in charge for basically like then like for 20 years, then like 30 years or 40 years. Then again, with the family rights, uh, the only thing that I would like to add is that uh, the inclusion of when and women in and men, it doesn't only discriminate against LGBTQ plus people, but it actually discriminates against single mothers because a lot of people who are single mothers in Russia, they said like, we are also a family. So if I have a child or if I have two children and I'm divorced, I'm a single mother and I, I still consider myself a family. Why, why would you put this in the constitution? I think yeah. it was more about like legal terms, no? Yeah, but again, that, that can still be a problem. Yeah. Yeah. So that's uh, yeah, but I'm not really sure that people are actually like satisfied with this, and um, and I believe that the problem is it might alienate our well, I wouldn't say friends by but people but countries uh, that consider Russia like a country that they can deal with in Western Europe, for example, and if you look through the media and. Uh, the public response uh, in Europe to what's happening in Russia with regards to these amendments. Uh, people and governments, they think it's uh, it's a violation of so many things. So, And I believe that these amendments might have really long-term um, effects. Okay, thank you. Well, thank you very much for that. I think we'll um, move on to the next topic with uh, Jonas, if you want to introduce it briefly and... Uh, yeah, keep going. Yeah, thank you. Really good debate so far. I've been very impressed by uh, by everything. Really, I'm really happy. It's been so, very interesting thus far. Hope I don't let that level slip. But, <laughs> I'm sure you won't. But basically, what I will be discussing is the development, well, the latest development between uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia's relations. But first of all, uh, I, I will give give some background and then go go on to where we are now. So. Russia has had a very sort of pragmatic role in the Middle East, especially from 2016 when it became uh, militarily involved in the Syria conflict. And unlike the US, which has been very much more of a demanding client uh, power in the sense of offering their help in return for vapors, you know, quid pro quo sort of I scratch your back, you scratch mine approach, Syria has accept, um, Russia has accepted the Middle Eastern regimes for what they are rather than what they want them necessarily to be. And so after this in 2016, you know, we, we see a warm, warming of relations between 
Russia and Saudi Arabia. We have the first uh, state visit by the Saudi Arabian monarch to Moscow in October 2017, where they agree to buy the S-400 anti-air missile systems, which are still regarded by many security experts as the best anti-air missile systems uh, to date, which was first manufactured in the 1990s. But moving on from this, this was then reciprocated back in 2019 with when Putin visited uh, to, to Riyadh uh, to, to warm from it. And during this period, uh, Russia being at the beginning first a non-OPEC um, member, let me remind myself again what that stands for, the Organization of the Petroleum Exporting Countries became a oil exporting countries. And now we, we move forward to our current uh, year, 2020, where we see uh, a tension rising. Whilst relationships have warmed between the two, this is the first bump uh, in the 21st, well, one of the first bumps in the warmthening of relationships between the two. And that is mainly to do with uh, the fact of disagreeing on how much oil uh, should be uh, producing and be available to the markets. As I think the International Energy Agency had predicted, um, over a third of the oil demand would be gone by uh, March and April due to uh, the unfolding at the time measures of social distancing, lockdown uh, as, as a response to COVID-19. Well, one thing we also have to remember is in February 2020, um, the US actually blacklisted and, uh, how would I say, completely not sanctioned, but I'm looking for the other word, um, well, blacklisted is, I think, a good one, uh, trade between the US and the biggest uh, exporting oil company of Russia. And so Russia saw an opportunity, in a sense, when the OPC, especially led by Saudi Arabia, wanted to lower production, uh, Moscow did not agree and actually increased it, which in turn in turn meant that the prices fell uh, beyond, I think, 40%. Uh, and we, we saw, and went negative briefly. And yes. went negative briefly in places like the US. Not for the Russian. Not for the Russians. Yeah. Not for the Russians. But, and part of this is maybe, yes, getting some sort of uh, revenge on the US, but also partly we have to remember the fragility of the Russian economy in the sense of its exports and its heavy dependence still on energy exports, which makes up around 70% of its total exports. So it's it's been very tense uh, from being a non-OPEC member to now being an OPEC member. The, the first, this is the first big bump in the road between Russia and Saudi Arabia. Uh, increasingly, Russia has been seen in the region as this um, deal breaker between all these different uh, parties because of its pragmatism. But sooner or later, it will have to antagonize as, as more as it asserts its own influence in the region. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Okay, there's the first question. I mean, um, why did Russia feel like it had to abandon its agreement with Saudi Arabia and pump more oil? That's a great this, question. 
Thank you. That's why I asked. Yeah, it. I mean, I don't have an answer. Okay, well, well thank you. I, I appreciate you liking the question. Um, Jonas, have you got an answer by any chance? Um, why do you think it did this? Well, I, I will reply, but I think... Well, I think, Nadia, did you want to, to firstly get, on, get in on it? Or I, 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 can, I, I, mean, I can reply? No, no, no. I, Go on. I'm completely okay. interested in your opinion. Okay. Uh, I think, generally speaking, like I've mentioned, this sort of uh, blacklisting of this company, let me get it off, Rosneft. Uh, there we go. Rosneft, one of the largest mm -hmm. uh, oil-producing companies by the Trump administration, um, of, would have, of course, angered uh, Moscow greatly. And it was an opportunity, of course, to uh, dump oil onto the market. And knowing the dependency of the US on oil, which I think crude oil still makes up more than half of all, all um, uh, the US's uh, energy consumption, I think, uh, it, it was it was an opportunity in that sense, in a geopolitical sense. But also, I think, like I have said towards the end of my opening statement, I think it's this idea that Russia has to continue to uh, produce this rate. First of all, you know, as we saw over the course of the last few months, the ruble has been suffering greatly from these um, economic restrictions, these social distancing measures and lockdown. And what we what we also have to remember is this lack of diversity in Russia's um, exporting markets to make up this sort of lost ground. Uh, guns and weapons don't do enough. It's been a massive sort of diplomatic venture uh, of Russia in the Middle East, uh, and but it only makes up some multi-billion uh, um, ruble or um, dollar contracts. But energy can have so much more. In this regard, and I guess one last question is, and Ms. YouTube, but um, last November the U.S. became the largest oil exporting country in the world. Um, it now actually produces more than Russia in terms of refined oil, not crude oil. Uh, do you think this has any impact in why Russia and Saudi Arabia, are especially, tense or yeah, are reconsidering their their role in the energy markets? I think, I think definitely in the sense that Russia is trying to is still trying to diversify in, in oil, and it's of course looking in, in the Arctic mm -hmm. and beyond the Middle East for, for for greater things. But it's also diversifying in in energy, in gas. One thing which we've seen in Syria especially is this production of phosphates and trying to get into back into the EU's. Um, fertilizer market as well. And this, of course, goes beyond energy. But one thing we have to remember is that it, Russia is, 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 is trying to play a catch-up in this sense. It's trying to diversify um, as much as possible. And that's increasingly being seen throughout the expanding oil pipes. And let me go beyond the Middle East here for a brief second again. It doesn't want to rely on one partner. It's why it's been trying to diversify beyond Europe, which has been for a long time its main partner, especially in natural gas. What we are seeing now is we are seeing the greatest rapid expansion in, in Russian history of energy export. We are seeing uh, a two, what is expected to be a fourth, fourfold um, increase in energy exports to China in the next five years. 
And that is because it's trying to diversify because seemingly the lines between economy and politics are always being blurred. And unlike uh, Russia itself and its pragmatic approaches, I would say, I would call them, organizations such as the EU tend to have uh, greater principles of uh, ideology and market principles to uphold um, if, and, uh, and sanctions if it needs to use it to sort of stop uh, what it would perceive as expansionist policies abroad. So, yeah, I hope that answers it. Oh, definitely. Uh, anything else, uh, Gary or Nadia, you want to add? Uh, I have a little, like, small detail to add, just a fan fact. Uh, sure. Russia is really trying to diverse, diverse, diversify. Diverse. Diversify, thanks. I didn't speak to anyone in weeks, so I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, uh, Russia is really trying to diversify its export of well oil and gas. And the only thing with China is, from what I know, China is paying less for the same amount of gas and oil than Europe. That's one thing. And the second is Russia is really heavily dependent on uh, exports of fossil fuels, but. Russia is also the world's largest wheat exporter now. And that happened like in the last, I don't know, two or three years. What exporter, sorry? Wheat. Wheat. Okay. Oh, wheat. Oh. Sorry. No, I no, thought no, I mean. heard something else there. <laughs> For a second, I thought you meant marijuana. And I was <laughs> very confused there. No, wheat. I guess yeah, that's yeah. Afghanistan. Uh, no, yeah, it's wheat. And it's also a leader in ex- exporting fish. And sunflower oil, if I'm not mistaken, not not like the the the, the first place, but like somewhere in the, it, in the top. It's a big exporter of a huge amount of, of primary products. I think we call them. Yeah, it is true. Yeah. So yeah, it's just like to be not like Russia is dependent on oil and gas. That's true, but like it is trying to do something with it, and there are like small <laughs> success. Mm-hmm. There is like a bit of success, yes. Okay, very interesting. I mean, um, may I add a final remark to that? And then part of that may, diversification, may of part of that diversification, has been to sort of look at the the arms uh, markets in the region. Uh, one 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 comment which was made by uh, the foreign minister of of Russia, I think in two thousand and eighteen, and his uh, yeah. final his annual address, but you know before the the start of the new year, he he said, you know, it's been. Uh, a great experience for over 40,000 Russian troops. I'm paraphrasing here, but it was along these lines. And one thing we have to remember here as well is Russia has been testing over 200 um, new weapons in Syria. And these new weapons, uh, surprise, surprise, have then been bought by many uh, surrounding states, such as Saudi Arabia. Israel has shown also um, interest. Turkey has bought also the, the... anti-missile systems, and so is India. And what this is actually doing is it's dividing these uh, previously very Western-aligned nations uh, because there was, I think, an agreement in 2017 or 2018 of a a ban on on, uh, basically on Russian arms being um, bought by these, and it's alienated the Trump administration in the U.S. So what Russia is 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 doing, you could say, as I, I would say, an ulter- ulterior motive, is that it it has been sort of divide dividing up these 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 
traditional allies of the West through offering their expertise in all sorts of, of arms ranging from new fighter jets um, to you know prototype of fighter jets all the way to, uh, to, to new tank systems, anti-aircraft systems and so forth. Okay, interesting. And of course all of those are going to need a hell of a lot of oil to keep yes, them running. Exactly. So, uh, I'm sure I'm sure they'll keep with that. Okay, well thank you very much, Jonas. Um we haven't got too much too not too longer, so I'll keep this one relatively short. But I want to talk a little bit about Zelensky's anti corruption campaign in Ukraine. Now Zelensky of course in quite a major upset last year, almost exactly a year ago, he was three hundred and sixty one days into his presidency won uh, the presidential election in Ukraine, largely on a platform of change and especially about anti-corruption. It was one of his two major drivers, the others, of course, being the ending of the war uh, with Russia. Um, however, that's not really what I want to focus on today. Now, this corruption charge has had some major successes, uh, especially he's made it so that immunity to deputies can be lifted, which was one of the key problems before. Um, he has... Uh, introduced new legislation um, for not only public but also private procurement to make sure the wrong people aren't getting contracts. And most recently, uh, he passed a critical anti-corruption bill um, looking at the way international aid is utilised. One of the main problems and one of the main concerns from the IMF, who is a major donor in Ukraine, is the fact that the money they go goes through, and I quote, one door and straight out the other. As a key point, uh, last year in 2019, when the IMF released $5.5 billion, almost all of it went upholding one of Ukraine's banks, one of its major banks, because it was in severe debt. Now, of course, the argument was if this bank fell, it would be in a lot worse situation, but I'm not really here to pass judgments on it, but certainly there have been major concerns in the anti-corruption fight. And a year on, I think the interesting change is that people are now worried and now concerned he's not taking the right directives. Now, this is mostly because of a lot of the changes in people and the changes in offices and officers that he has put forward. For example, one of the first prime ministers who served under him was fired. Um, of course, Zelensky uh, says this is because he, he had problems, he was corrupt, but the prime minister himself says that this was because of his anti-corruption drive that Zelensky did not want. Furthermore, other key figures, such as heads of uh, public procurement offices, have been fired to and replaced. Um, most uh, notably, those in the, sort of the court's appeal um, have, uh, I believe it's... Oh, I don't have the exact name here, but many people have been replaced. And at the beginning, this was seen as a positive step, of course, the, the old people cannot stay. If anything, Darry, much like you said, you know, fresh air needs to be brought in. Um, but now some people are wondering, there's a bit too much fresh air here, and not enough is being done to justify these regular changes. And if anything, some of his former supporters, Oleski Honcharuk, the former prime minister who was fired, um, have now very much positioned himself against Zelensky's um, campaign, viewing it more as a, a paint change rather than a deeper sort of undercoat. I think many European countries have seen as positive developments. They kind of see any development as a positive development in Ukraine. And Zelensky's positioning, well, Zelensky's positioning as a real European country 
the Zelensky celebrated Europe Day almost as much as any Europe EU member state. Um, I think the cynic in me would say that this is a way to kind of stop the EU from looking too deeply into his actions and potentially has not been as effective as he thought. Um, but on the other hand, he will definitely need a lot more European help uh, to deal with the issue of corruption. Whether this will arrive in time um, is questionable, but certainly one year on, neither of his two main campaign promises have had significant grounds. Um, yes, the prisoner exchange with Russia were a very positive development, but the war is still ongoing, and especially in issues of um, uh, a future referendum in eastern Ukraine or even just the frontiers of eastern Ukraine, nothing has really being pushed further. Okay, any comments or questions? Oh yeah, I have a question. Um, I'm not sure if you have some information or no, but uh, from what I read that people, like the Ukrainians, uh, are really skeptical about fighting the corruption. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess that's a shared problem for both Russia and Ukraine. I mean, corruption yeah. is huge. And do you have any, I don't know, maybe statistics or information how the Ukrainians, um, what's their attitude towards Zelensky action in, into anti-corruption uh, like uh, direction? Well, of course, unfortunately, the only major kind of statistics on how much they approve of Zelensky's anti-corruption was his election last year. There hasn't really been any major public tests of him so far. Mm -hmm. um, in the way that, yeah, that's true. Uh, Dari, why don't you introduce it? No, I'm sorry for chiming in, but uh, okay. what, there has been one. Well, it it was not carried out with regards to corruption. It was done with regards to like the general public view of him, and his ranking actually went down. So basically, and uh, I. I'm on board uh, with Philip on this one, you know, it's funny. So it's basically been a year and a lot of people actually expected him to bring about positive change to Ukraine to make it like more prosperous, like more like closer to Europe. But the problem is um, he basically like he bring with him the entire new team. Yeah. And now we have a lot of they have a lot of structural like. Uh, changes that are being made and uh, a lot of people just wonder so i mean why uh, would you bring in a lot of people then you make a lot of changes so it seems very like volatile so uh, and it's only been a year and a lot of people like question if it's okay to do so and i'm also on board with the position that even though a year is not a lot but he made a huge amount of promises to the Ukrainian people mm -hmm. and uh, people wanted actually to see some action uh, regarding the war in Donbass, for example, mm -hmm. and it uh, has n nothing has been done thus far. True. True. Uh, and uh, the implementation of Minsk agreement, it, it has not, nothing also has happened and uh, basically uh, they also have the problem, even though it wasn't brought up as a, as a major problem within the public debate, I'm not sure why it wasn't, but still the problem with the Russian language, which has been like exterminated yes. from the yeah. territory of the Ukraine, even though half of Ukraine uh, used to have uh, mm -hmm. Russian as the official language and mm -hmm. people still speak it, even in Kiev, even though they keep saying that there's only a small percentage of population that speaks Russian, it's not. 
And, you know, it's funny, like, have you read the news? So basically yesterday he issued an order that would ban any cooperation with the Hermitage Museum <laughs> yeah. here in St. Petersburg. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the Russian Museum in Moscow. These are like cult and, and Moscow State University. So apart from Moscow State University, those are like cultural institutions. It's basically if he prohibited like any cooperation with the Louvre or the British Museum. So basically, and I'm questioning, why would you do this if you have a lot of burning issues on hand? So, and as a citizen, yeah. yeah. Well, there's two reasons looking at it. One is, of course, Zelensky, as, let's remember his background as an actor, um, people do forget it, but symbolism is a huge item uh, that he pushed for. Even in his opening presidential address, he spoke Russia and Ukrainian at the same time. That was seen as obviously symbolic. Uh, as you say, the hermitage is a very symbolic move. Um, I believe that he also, as a president, wants to focus his own actions on those symbols whilst creating what he would call a competent team to run the administration behind it. Now, this is seen not only through, as you say, the quite... Extreme is hard to say because any change is kind of extreme in this sense, but the way he's changed so many people, he's changed so many people so that they can get on with it whilst he focuses more on the symbolism or the other issues involved. And of course, his reaction to why it hasn't worked out is the previous administration and bureaucracy is slow. But every time there's a criticism, the answer is the bureaucracy, the bureaucracy. Um, which, to be honest, for most countries wouldn't be a relative excuse. I have a feeling that for Ukraine, that is quite a good excuse. There is a lot of damaging bureaucracy there. Um, but yeah, as you say, the people after a year are definitely worried with how much, whether this change can be good or not. I don't believe anyone is necessarily uh, angry there has been so much change, but they haven't seen the positive developments of this change yet. And uh, the promises he made were big promises. And... Um, we shall see whether he can carry them out properly. Don't you think that the the problem also lies um, in the realm of the power in Ukraine being not entirely in hands of uh, the president himself? So basically, they have a lot of people uh, who hold nationalistic views, like who is like extremely anti-Russian, which he seems not to be. So he's pretty mild in his views, I would say. So that's why a lot of Russian people also had high hopes for him. So, and there is this debate, I mean, as to, is he really in charge, for example? Like, he's, he's not nationalistic. I mean, he's never said anything like divisive or something, no, uh, or inflammatory. But there are powers that are so, like, powerful. In France, yeah. Uh, in, in Ukraine, yeah. yeah, like, they have parties, but uh, they are not in charge. They used to be in charge, but then he came in and became the president, a different yeah. one. And yet... Yeah. I would say that he hasn't tried to overplay his position and fight against those who maybe are more entrenched in the politics of it, who might be more nationalistic. He fundamentally believes that his role is to set the stage for further kind of changes. And in that case, an open war between him and the more nationalist parties would slow down any chance of further progress. I think he views, and in my view correctly, um, that working moderately with all of those around you, even those whose agreements you don't necessarily like, is the only way you can really bring about any functional change. 
but that is being tested. And I think we will see over his next year whether that continues. The truce that was created by his sort of energetic election is definitely waning. Um, and I wouldn't be surprised when we see some more aggressive stances by him and his team later. Um, and as you say, yeah, the system is also very strangely set up. So the prime minister, for example, holds quite a mixed amount of power and it's definitely confusing between them who runs certain ideas. I don't think he has found a team he is happy with yet in terms of his government. And uh, let's just hope he does before the, 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 the next situation happens. Well, <laughs> about Ukraine, I just, I believe, like, it's not only ideological problems, but, like, yeah, yeah, like, the whole country is, I mean, I would not want to be a president of Ukraine now. I mean, it's so many problems, not only ideological, but, like, economic problems, and a huge debt and corruption, and I just guess that, first of all, from what I saw, um, many of his actions were not, like, um they were like in different directions like he would say let's make a truce with russia that's like an example and then he would say something uh, like we will not uh, we will like stand to the end yeah and, and that's like just an example there were like many many things like that and i believe that any politician would be zelensky would be another one doesn't matter would be in a really difficult condition now in this situation and him being not a professional politician it, it just like adds to the to the, to the to the difficulties of the situation uh but yes uh that's i mean i just i guess I'm really afraid for the like the future of Ukraine because of the whole European crisis going on, going on now, like because of the coronavirus, and because I mean Ukraine still depends on the European Union for help, and I'm really afraid of what what are going to happen, and I, I would be interested mm -hmm. to see how I mean because there is still economic help, yeah. economic aid aid is needed. And where will money come from? I sincerely don't know. Though I know that China China started investing in some of the factories. Indeed. Indeed. True. Yeah, yeah. Ch China's been moving on with its... Uh, similar to Serbia, it's been trying to sort of work with that. I think, yeah, it's going to be a very critical year for both Zelensky and Ukraine. Um, I think last year was a very bumpy ride. Uh, you know, you had people like... Uh, yeah, the Germans getting a lot more involved. There was a belief that the Steinmeier formula could suddenly bring about uh, a breakage of the truce. Never happened, of course. The prisoner exchanges, which people thought would rise up. The prisoner exchanges followed one week later, later by the largest deaths in the conflict since the start, followed by two weeks later by another round of prisoner exchanges. It's been a very up and down situation. As you say, I would not want to be president of Ukraine right now. Um, but uh, yeah, we shall definitely see where it goes. So, I think that's all we have for today. Um, an excellent discussion, definitely one of the, the more interesting ones we've had here in the Great European Talks. Thank you very much to Dari, Nadia, Jonas for joining us. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Uh, join us again next week where we'll be discussing another area of Greater Europe. Please make sure to follow us, social media, everything good. Have a wonderful week, stay safe.
Thank you and bye.